now I'm going to attempt to uh, explain a big idea, and then that big idea, I hope, will lead us to a more narrow kind of detailed idea. And um, the big idea should not be something new, but maybe you've never heard me kind of talk about it quite the way that I'm going to talk about it today. Uh, I've never really given it a title the way uh, I am today, so it might... Anyway, so uh, there's this idea called the Great Reversal, okay? And the best definition that I can come up with the great for the Great Reversal actually comes uh, from the book of Luke, and it's part of Mary's song, right? So Mary, has, uh, she's just kind of caught up in the spirit because she realizes that her baby boy uh, is going to be the Savior, that, that he's the, the coming Messiah. And she says this, she sings this kind of ecstatic song about what her son will do. He has brought down the powerful from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. Now, uh, again, that comes from Luke, but the great reversal is a theme in all four of the Gospels. Uh, and then it shows up in different places in Paul's letters. And it's also a very, very big theme in the prophets of the Old Testament. Um, so what I did was I went through the entire book of Matthew with a fine tooth comb. And uh, I highlighted every part of the book that is about the great reversal. Okay, uh, <clears throat> And just to give you a sense of how broad sweeping this idea is that Jesus is going to, uh, going to take the prideful, those who exalt themselves and humble them, and take those who are humbled and lift them up. Okay, So every place that I could find that, where it was clearly the point, and it was not, I, I wouldn't consider there being any counter-argument in all of the reading that I've ever had done. Those are in yellow, okay? It's just incontrovertible. You can deny it all you want, but it's there in bald face, plain as day, right? Uh, and then, um, then the blue is where the great reversal maybe isn't the point of the passage, right? But it's in the background of the passage, uh, one of the passages like that is the one we read today about this woman who's anointed. The point of the passage is not necessarily Jesus lifting the woman up, but it is obviously a part of the passage. And so uh, the idea is that here we got this grand theme, and I think it is the theme that holds uh, not just Matthew's kind of literary expression of the gospel together, but the whole idea of the gospel together. At the very basic core of the gospel is this great reversal. He who was put to shame for our sake was resurrected and vindicated, right? By humbling himself, he was then God exalted him. That is the gospel, is the great reversal within Jesus' story and his body and his life. And so we have this grand big idea that does, I think, come into play in this particular passage. Now, I have talked about the great reversal uh, ad nauseum, right, to the point where I could maybe have made you nauseous of it. Uh, but, uh, so I've talked about the great reversal where Jesus lifts up those who are poor, where Jesus lifts up those who are oppressed, Jesus lifts up, lifts up and heals the disabled, and then uh, where Jesus lifts up the Gentiles. I've, I've done a sermon on all of these things so far in the book of Matthew, but I haven't touched on 
is women. And that is a big part of this last piece of the book of Matthew. Okay, It kind of starts here, but then there are a couple of spots where very key mentions of the role of women are at play and at work. So I want to talk about that. I want to talk about the great reversal as it relates to women and specifically how it relates to this woman, which I think will then show you uh, what this passage, the real kind of meat of the point of the passage is. So uh, let's read a little bit of this story again. So again, the woman has brought in an alabaster jar filled with expensive ointment. And of course, they made these jars... Uh, where they had like a seal on the top of it. It was just one piece, right? So in order to get the oil out, you had to actually break the top, which then meant once you'd done that, you might as well pour it all out uh, because you didn't have a way to seal it back up again, right? So this is, she's going to have to use all the oil she's got now that she's done this. And they, of course, say, why on earth would he, why on earth would you do this? Uh, Why why is this okay? Because isn't isn't this a gigantic waste of money? So Jesus says this, why do you trouble the woman? She has performed a good service for me, for you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. Just as a really brief aside, uh, I have heard this little line used as therefore an excuse to say, well, see, you don't need to care about the poor because they're always going to be there. In fact, two people within my family one time, it was at my wife's graduation party, uh, two very close people who will rename, remain anonymous. I overheard them talking about this passage. And these are two, two men that I respect deeply. And they were talking about how this passage meant we don't need to care about the poor because they're always going to be there anyway. At which point I had no control over the words that came out of my mouth. Um, <laughs> this is actually a very good chance that this is a quotation from Deuteronomy 15.11, okay? And Deuteronomy 15.11 says, you will always have the poor with you in the land. Therefore, you will always have opportunities to care for the poor, right? Like, So this is not an excuse to not do that. I'm preaching to the choir. You all know that's true. But just in case you ever hear somebody say that that's what this means. The point is, is that you don't always have to spend your money on that, Right? Worship of Jesus is also a good use of your money, right? At, uh, adoring him and giving him your love with uh, your finances is also an appropriate use of funds. So by pouring this ointment on my body, she has prepared me for burial. She has prepared me for burial. Now, all throughout, not all throughout, but from about a quarter of the way through the book until this point, Jesus has said, Several times, without being cryptic in the slightest, he said, I'm going to be handed over to the chief priests. They're going to kill me. I will suffer at their hands. I will die. He said this a number of times. And one of the times that he says that, Peter rebukes him and says, no, you won't. I'm not letting that happen. At which point Jesus says, you Satan get behind me. So whereas it's been a hard thing for the God, for the disciples to get their mind around that he's going to die, here this woman has done this great service. She has acknowledged that he will die and has anointed his body for burial. She has joined with his mission and trajectory. She has said, okay, this is how you're going to do it. I'm with you. Let me anoint your body for its 
suffering. And then he says, truly I tell you, wherever the good news is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in remembrance of her. I was not going to actually include, you know, I've had to like chop Matthew up so that uh, we would get to the resurrection on Easter. And I was not going to do this story. And then I read that and I was like, does that mean I'd be sinning if I don't like tell this story? Right. (laughs) Uh, So we're going to tell this in remembrance of her. Um, So Matthew doesn't tell this story in as much detail as Luke and Mark and John actually tell this story. It's one of the very few stories that's in all four Gospels. And all the other, the other uh, three give a lot more detail. They, they say things in particular in the, book, in the Gospel of Luke. He talks about how she lets down her hair and she cleans his feet with, uh, and wipes, she wipes the tears off of his feet with her hair. So uh, a couple of things about that. One is uh, the only kind of woman who lets down her hair in that sort of society is a prostitute. Okay? So that is a uh, sexually scandalous thing to do in the presence of a man is to let down your hair. Second uh, scandalous thing about that is that she touches his feet, which is not really uh, something that a woman should have done to a man who wasn't her husband. Um, Let's see. She's at the dinner to begin with, apparently. Uh, In the other stories, it appears that she's an uninvited guest and has very boldly barged in to the dinner. So the place of a woman in this society uh, was not at the table, was not there. Uh, Women weren't allowed to be disciples of rabbis. Women weren't allowed to teach anyone uh, really about God. Even like, you know, in in stages of church history, the church has said, well, women can't do this, but they can teach children. Well, women weren't even allowed to teach children about God in this time period. That was a man's job. In fact, about 100 years after Jesus' life, the way that uh, the Jews ended up organizing their society, and there's still a very strict uh, Orthodox Jewish group in Jerusalem who still organizes themselves this way, is that the men don't work. Uh, the women do all the work. The women uh, do all the farming, all the planting, all the harvesting, all the, the production of food and taking care of the home so that the men can study Torah, study the law, and the men can teach the children Torah. So the women are uh, essentially were extracted from the purposes of God within the family and within the society. Okay, women weren't allowed to participate in the mission in a lot of ways. And so Jesus says, uh, "Here he is lifting this woman up and saying she's recognized it. She knows where I'm headed. She's got it figured out. I'm gonna die. She's accepted that. And I tell you the truth." Wherever this story goes, she'll be talked about. Her obedience, her recognition of who I am. So again, Jesus' followers who are women, not just this woman, it's an interesting twist here, not twist, but theme, is that not just this woman, but a lot of the women who are Jesus' followers seem to understand that he must suffer seem to have accepted that, whilst his disciples miss it or even oppose it. I talked about the story of, of Peter opposing it, right? Uh, the other, other parts of it is, uh, we read about it today, where Jesus says, I tell you the truth, you're all, you're all going to be scattered. right? They're going to strike the shepherd, and then you're going to flee. And it says uh, later in, in chapter 26, when the soldiers show up and Judas comes, they all deserted him. right? So that 
in Matthew, there's no mention of there being any disciples at the cross. But who is at the cross? Who is there watching? Who has not deserted him? The women. It's in, uh, you can look it up. There's a list of them. There, I wrote them down somewhere. 27, chapter 27, verses 55 through 56. The women are at the cross. The disciples are nowhere to be found. The, uh, so the, oh, for some reason, the women seem to accept this claim of Jesus is that I, I will have to die. On the other hand, uh, and then also they're there when Jesus is resurrected. They're the first witnesses, which we'll talk about on Easter more thoroughly. But if you look at chapter 28, verses 1 through 10, you'll find that they're there. Incidentally, women were not allowed to uh, be witnesses in a court of law because they were considered too emotional to give an accurate uh, description of true events. And yet, there they are, the only witnesses witnesses to the resurrection. God entrusts them with carrying that story. We would not, I mean, we li literally not have the story if they did not act obediently, because he says, go and tell my brothers what has happened. And they go, and they tell them. And so part of the great reversal is a guy like Judas should have gotten it. And the expectation was that women couldn't get it. That women were not a part of what God was doing. And Jesus says, this woman will always be remembered. On the other hand, on the other hand, Jesus, or Judas is contrasted with the woman, right? We go straight from the story of the woman anointing Jesus' feet at Bethany, or anointing Jesus at Bethany for his burial. Okay, She has accepted his burial. She has accepted his suffering. And we go straight from that. It says, and then Judas went to betray him. Now, it's been one of the great mysteries of Christian history. Uh, why did Judas betray Jesus? I can't tell you 100% this is why Judas did that. Um, that's just, it's just not available to us. Nobody's, none of the gospel spells it out. This is exactly why Judas betrays Jesus. But there is a hint here that something happens in that encounter with the woman who anoints Jesus that compels Judas to go and look for an opportunity to betray him. Here's my hypothesis. And that is Judas agreed with Jesus that God's kingdom needed to come. Judas agreed with Jesus that God's redemption needed to come. Judas agreed with Jesus that, uh, that God needed to move and act in the world. Judas did not agree with the trajectory of the how that that was going to happen. Judas did not agree that Jesus' death was essential to that coming of the kingdom. Judas did not agree that Jesus' death was essential to him becoming king. Judas did not agree that his death was essential to him accomplishing redemption. You know, we also read this morning where Jesus talks about he institutes communion. And what does he say to them? He makes his death front and center in that meal, right? This, this, is my, this cup is my blood. So if you're going to accept what I'm doing, you have to accept my death. This body, this bread is my body, which will be broken. My suffering, his suffering is front and center. Can the disciples accept it? Can they accept that his trajectory, his way of doing it, his how for the kingdom will be his death? And I think that for Judas, that was too much. 
It sounded too much like failure. It sounded too much like not victory. It sounded too much like continued oppression from Rome. It sounded too much like losing. And of course, the great irony of history is that in an attempt to avoid Jesus' death, he actually causes it. We know that that's part of it because he, once he finds out that they're going to kill him, he then tries to give the money back, right? Because he doesn't, that wasn't his necessarily his intention. And so we get out of this story a woman who, who uh, memorializes the fact that Jesus will die. So we get this woman who is lifted up by humbling herself and saying, yes, Jesus, this is who you will be. On the other hand, we get one of his disciples who says, I know better. <laughs> Exalts himself by saying, I know better. I don't, you, this is a bad plan. So we get this great reversal playing out. And the crux of it is, will we accept, will we accept it? Will we accept that Jesus, this is who Jesus will be? Uh, Peter obviously plays a role in this too. Uh, Jesus doesn't, it's not just Judas, it's also the, other, the rest of the 11. And Peter is, is part of that process where he has this conversation with Jesus, which is, I think it's appropriate to say, a rather prideful conversation where Peter basically says, no, I'm not going to do that, Jesus. You don't know me. I would never do that. Even if I had to die with you, I wouldn't deny you. And so there is this, in his disciples, there is at work this sense of pride. Uh, and that's, that's, that's a key point here, is that I think what makes the woman be lifted up is not the fact that she's a woman. And what makes... What makes Judas uh, run astray is not that he's a man, right? So it's not, it's not Judas's privilege within Jewish society that makes him run astray. And it's not, it's not the woman's oppression within Jewish society that makes her lifted up. I think it's the fact that she, the conditions around her helped her become humble and approach Jesus with humility. See, when we approach Jesus or anybody else with humility, we have this capacity to encounter the person as they really are. Right? She can see Jesus how he really is, a suffering servant, one who will die, one who will accomplish God's victory through death. Because she comes to him humble, she's able to accept that reality of who he is. On the other hand, you have Judas whose pride muddles Jesus' identity. It prevents, he wants to say how it should be done, and so he can't, he can't really accept how Jesus really is or who Jesus really will be. And I think that is, that is what we should take away from this, is how do we approach Christ now in our own struggles, in our own circumstances, in our own everyday life? Do we come to him open-handed from a place of humility, and do we say, teach me how to do it? <laughs> Be you and lead me on. Or do we decide that I want to tell Jesus what to do? Obviously, nobody in the room is going to admit that that's what we're doing, but I get there. 
I want to tell Jesus how my relationship with this person who has hurt me, I really want to tell Jesus this is how we're going to proceed in this relationship, Jesus. Here's my five-step plan for how to uh, humiliate them, and then maybe I'll forgive them after I've accomplished that humiliation of this person. Or do I come humbly in prayer to Jesus and I say, I don't actually know how to fix this relationship, God. Will you just lead? Will you teach me? This idea of pride versus humility is extraordinarily important for, for personal development as a Christian. It's also really, really important in terms of Christian history. It's really important in terms of Christian history. Um, I actually, the only reason I'm giving you this example is because I recently uh, studied a book on the KKK, okay? I know you're all thinking, why on earth would you subject yourself to such a thing? I'm a, a historian, and there are areas of history that I don't know much about, and I think to myself, well, I better know about that, especially the dark ages of history, because it's important to, to look those square in the eye to understand. Anyway, so I was reading this book, and it was particularly about the KKK of the 1920s, and I knew, I knew that the members of the KKK considered themselves Christians. But I had no idea the depth of the way that they saw themselves as Christians. I had no idea. I was blown away. They, they wrote stories about Jesus as uh, this conquering warrior who would uh, rid the earth of all Catholics with his fiery sword. Um, they, uh, the actual the ceremony of the cross burning the cross, uh, was intended to so you light the cross on fire and then and you do it at night, of course, and so the, the light from the cross is supposed to be, uh, and you'd often see them uh, with their hands out like this, it's around, surrounded in a circle, as an idea that I want to absorb the light of Christ as this cross is illuminated. Now, these folks were extraordinarily pride, prideful about being Protestant. They were not particularly, they were concerned about being white, but being Protestant was an extraordinarily important part of being a member of the KKK. In fact, they were instrumental in uh, initiating this law in 1924. It was an immigration law, and in the law, the idea was to make sure that Catholics and Jews from Europe did not come into the United States. Catholics and Jews. We often think of it just as like a black versus white thing. Um, but it was much more Christianized than that. They've seen themselves as we, want, we have to keep a pure sense of our religion. We can't have the Catholics coming in and corrupting us and leading us all astray and taking over because the Pope wants to take over America. And we can't have the Jews coming and controlling all of our money and doing all those sorts of seedy practices behind the scenes. And so by coming to Christ out of their sense of pride, this is how far astray it can lead us. Just like Judas, think of how uh, ridiculously astray Judas was led by his pride. The same sort of thing can happen. We, that's why we have, to, we have to look ourselves in the eye with pride. Pride leads to horrible, horrible places. So by coming to Jesus out of pride, uh, they were able to morph Jesus 
to lose Jesus' identity, to lose the essence of Jesus by coming to him out of their pride. In fact, one of the, one of the saddest moments in, uh, in history is this is in uh, 1939. There's a, uh, a boat called the MS St. Louis, and uh, it uh, was filled with German Jews. And um, they were fleeing because they, the Holocaust was, was rapidly happening. The, the ghettoization of Jews in Germany had already started. And so they were fleeing. And there were uh, 940 Jews aboard this boat. When the boat get, first goes to Cuba, and uh, Cuba accepts 22 people off of the boat, mostly because they were sick and they needed medical attention. So it shows up then in New York City Harbor, and uh, and they're they're pleading to you know let us in. Legally, the United States couldn't do it. Why couldn't they do it? It would have been illegal for uh, the United States to accept the boat. Why was it illegal? Because of that 1924 immigration law, so that they all had to go back. Now, a lot of them did find a refuge in the United Kingdom, but about 250 of them did end up dying in the Holocaust, and another 250 of them ended up in concentration camps, but surviving. How we approach Jesus is no small matter. How we approach Jesus is no small matter. Do we come to him to anoint him for what he will do and accept him? We come to him like that woman, lowly, and say, Jesus, be you. Or do we model ourselves more off of somebody like Peter at this point in time? Obviously, Peter's story will be redeemed, but at this point in time, we're like, no, no, that's not what's going to happen, God, <laughs> or Jesus. That's not what you're going to do. Or like Judas, who just flips out, can't handle it. And so I, I, I am giving you a uh, an opportunity to to do this today, basically to come and ask him to be him. I have this prayer for humility that uh, I've got spread out. They're mostly in the center. Every row has some, so if if you don't, if there aren't enough in your row, just grab them from the row ahead of you. <clears throat> but this this is you'll notice is not full. Um, it's got some of my writing, which I hope will be meaningful to you, but then there's space for your own writing to continue the prayer. So the my part of the writing is, uh, Lord Jesus, teach me to see you as you are. I want to follow you, not an image of you shaped by my desires. And then on the other side of this is another thing, is that our pride doesn't just muddle Jesus's identity. It also muddles our own identity. Right? Because what happens by, with Judas and Peter is they want to control, while servants don't control. <laughs> servants don't get to decide how it happens. Anyway, so teach me to see me as you see me. Def deflate my overblown sense of self. And then many of us don't struggle with an overblown sense of self. We actually struggle with the second part is, and lift me up out of self-abasing shame. Humility is not shame. Humility is an openness to who Christ is and an openness to be led. Uh, shame is a beating of yourself. 
is a hurting of yourself, is a self-abuse. They are very different. So I want to give you an opportunity today to approach Jesus with open hands. To anoint him with your prayers for what he desires to do, not what you wish he would do. To lay down desires to control him. To tell him what to do. But to find the joy in him leading you. That's the, I mean, that's the wonderful thing is this whole idea of humility is not, it's not self-abasement. It's not beating yourself up. Right? The leper comes to Jesus humbly and Jesus does what? He heals him. What we find when we come to him humbly with open hands is that he turns out to be a good, good father who does not give us a snake or sticks or stones. He is a good father. When we come to him with open hands, he comes to us and gives us joy. He comes to us and gives us peace. He comes to us and gives us healing. He comes to us and gives us life and life abundant. This is not about beating yourself up. It's just about saying, God, be you. I want to know you as you are and follow you and what you want and who you will be. So I added on more to my sermon there, but... <laughs> Take a few moments and then the worship team will come and, and pray. Pray with open hands and let Jesus be who he desires to be in your life.